Saturday marks the 100th day that U.S. Senator Josh Hawley has been a member of the U.S. Senate. And the Republican lawmaker has a lot to say about his transition into a federal office and some of the legislation that he's been working on over the past few months. Holly joins us next on the Politically Speaking podcast, so let's hit the music. This is Politically Speaking, the longest-running episodic podcast about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. Hi, everybody. This is Jason Rosenbaum, a political correspondent for St. Louis Public Radio. What you're about to hear is my conversation with U.S. Senator Josh Hawley in what can only be described as one of the most technologically confusing and amazing interviews in Missouri political journalism history. I'm being a little facetious here, but it did take a lot of technological manpower to get this interview done. I'm actually in Jefferson City this week covering the Missouri legislature, while Senator Hawley is in Washington, D.C. I used a Comrex Field Tap app while the senator was in a recording studio in the U.S. Senate. And we talked a lot about not only the issues he's been dealing with in his first 100 days in the Senate, but also his transition from being a statewide official, namely the attorney general, to being one of 100 U.S. senators. That was the first topic we talked about in our conversation. First of all, Senator, thank you so much for joining me from Washington, D.C. I want to ask you about your transition to being a U.S. senator. There's been a lot of statewide executive officials who have become U.S. senators from Missouri. And some of them have said the transition can be kind of challenging going from like leading a leading an agency and being the boss to being one of 100 members and, and, and being low on the totem pole and seniority. I'd be interested to hear what your experience has been like because you kind of fall into that statewide uh, official going into the Senate archetype. Well, it certainly is a switch from running uh, an agency, uh, you know, r- running um, the attorney general's office in this case and being a, a, a prosecutor uh, to being a legislator. I've never been in a legislature before. I mean, as you know, Jason, I, I haven't spent much time in politics. I mean, I, I run for attorney general is the first time I'd ever run for any office. So uh, this definitely is a switch. But, you know, I, I think I'm the same person. I bring the same sort of proclivities uh, to, to both offices. I mean, I, I was a, an aggressive uh, attorney general uh, doing things that uh, no previous attorney general in our state had done before, like going after uh, the opioid manufacturers, launching investigations of Google and, and Facebook, going after human trafficking. And I've tried to bring that same aggressive iconoclast uh, style with me to uh, the United States Senate. I think I owe it to my constituents. I want to talk about some of the legislation you've sponsored so far. Some of them have dealt with duck boat safety, um, a grant program to prevent police suicides, and also a, a bid to lower the cost of prescription drugs. I want to talk about the third bill in particular first, because many Washington politicians have talked about lowering prescription drugs for, for decades and have tried and failed uh, to various degrees. Explain what your plan is and how it's not going to fall into the same traps as other efforts to lower prescription drugs. Well, it's really simple. It's a simple plan, and it just says that these big drug companies, big pharma, 
should not charge American and Missouri families more than they're charging people in Europe. And so it just has no more price gouging. I mean, you can't ask Missouri families to bear the cost of cheap drugs in Europe and in Canada. And let me give you an example, Jason, of the kind of thing that uh, goes on. So in Versailles, Missouri, the cost of a common prescription blood thinner that's prescribed all over our state, used by many seniors in particular, uh, is 500% more expensive, 500% more expensive than the same drug in Versailles, France. So that is the kind of thing that my bill would prohibit. It, it says that it, what you're going to charge to consumers in Europe and in Canada, you need to charge to consumers in the United States. And they can set the price. I mean, it's, it's a free market. I mean, they can determine, they the pharma companies, what, what the prices are. But you cannot gouge Missouri consumers and, uh, and, and then lower prices for people overseas. How have Democrats responded to this idea? And and. For our listeners and for people that know politics, Democratic buy-in to some of these ideas is important because they control the House of Representatives. They've also been talking about lowering prescription drugs. Is it possible this is an issue where there could be some bipartisan consensus that cuts through the, the typical partisan back and forth that we see in Washington? Boy, I sure hope so. And I, I have not heard any criticism of uh, my plan from uh, across the aisle or really from anybody. Uh, but on the other hand, I, I think that uh, I'm sorry to say that something I've learned in my brief time in the United States Senate is that politics always prevails and the amount of partisan gamesmanship that goes on in this body and in Congress in general is just unbelievable. I mean, when I first got here, the Senate was completely shut down. Democrats filibustered everything that was brought to the floor because they're mad at the president uh, about the border wall. Now they're mad at the president about uh, the Mueller report. It's vindicated, obviously. So I, I am very concerned. You know, I've got half the Democrat caucus in the Senate is running for president themselves. So I'm very concerned about our ability to get things done. Uh, including things like bringing down prescription drug costs. But uh, look, I hope that uh, the plan that I put forward with Senator Scott from Florida, I, I hope that that is one that uh, will get broad bipartisan support and something we can get done. Because uh, consumers in our state, families in our state, they need it. Prescription drugs are way too expensive. The prices are out of control. We need to act. I, before we get to some of the partisan rancor that you were talking about, I do want to touch on the duck boat legislation that you put forward. I do know that after the tragedy in Branson, Senator McCaskill, you, the person that you defeated in last year's election, was was trying to take up that issue and push forward legislation. Is there any differences between what now former Senator McCaskill tried to do on that issue and what you're trying to do? Or is this kind of an issue where both of you kind of agreed on the the legislative solutions to this and you're, you're basically trying to, to, to carry the ball forward after she's left office? This uh, my bill uh, embraces everything that Senator McCaskill had proposed, and then tries to take it a step further uh, in a couple of critical ways. Jason, what the bill says is is that the recommendations made by safety experts, and in particular by the National Transportation Safety Board, should be implemented, and they should be they would be required to be implemented under under this law. So, what, what that would mean is is that these duck boats have to uh, create new uh, flotation measures, new flotation devices. Uh, or they have to add additional pumps, water pumps, uh, to the boats. There has to be a safety inspection, not only on a regular basis for the whole fleet of duck boats, but before every ride out on the water, there's got to be a safety inspection. And we added new requirements about weather forecasting and weather observance 
my bill would require duck boat operators uh, to stay off the water if there is a weather warning or weather watch even within a certain radius, and it would require constant monitoring um, of the National Weather Service during uh, a during a ride. We know that those things didn't happen. On Table Rock Lake, uh, the boat went out on the water when it probably should not have, based on the weather warnings, was not monitoring the weather, and obviously that tragedy ensued. So it's a it's a tough bill. Um, it says that if, if duck boat owners can't comply or won't comply, they've got to get off the water, and they've got to stay off the water. I think that's the kind of safety guarantee that the people of Missouri deserve. What do you think the prospects for some of this legislation are to get to the president's desk? Because oftentimes I hear of a lot of federal politicians introduce legislation. It may sound sensible, but then it kind of disappears into a memory hole and is never actually voted on and never becomes law. Like, how do you avoid falling into that trap, especially when you are kind of low on this totem pole when it comes to to seniority? I hope that uh, with the duck boat legislation, for example, I mean, this, again, is is very common sense legislation that affects not just us in Missouri, but people around the country. Unfortunately, there have been duck boat tragedies in Arkansas and in Illinois and back on the East Coast. Uh, It it is a widespread problem. Uh, For that reason, I'm very hopeful that there will be broad bipartisan support uh, to move forward uh, this bill, again, based on NTSB recommendations and the further recommendations of safety experts. So, I'm I'm very hopeful, but uh, you know, once again, uh, there's always the danger I'm finding that this uh, partisan garbage uh, that has really uh, run the show here on Capitol Hill for too long uh, will overtake us, and I think that's something we have to fight against. I'm talking now with Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri. I, I want to talk about the partisan rancor when it comes to judicial nominees. You are a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee, which means that you get to review and vote first on a presidential nominee to, you know, lower courts and even to the Supreme Court. And one of the things I've noticed, not just recently, but throughout all my years of observing federal politics is when a nominee comes forward, it it seems like Republicans and Democrats kind of bifurcate into traditional partisan lines. So there's a Democratic president, the Democrats kind of adopt the Democratic part talking points about why that certain judge is good. Uh, and vice versa, Republicans talk about why that judge is bad. And now when we're in a situation where President Trump is nominating a whole bunch of uh, people to the bench, we kind of see that role reverse. I want to ask you, what assurances can you provide to Missourians that you're not just going to rubber stamp a lot of these judicial nominees and, and kind of fall into the quote unquote partisan garbage that you just kind of alluded to when it comes to judicial nominees? Well, what I can tell you is I'm going to exercise my independent judgment on every single nominee who comes before me on the Judiciary Committee and every other committee for that for that matter. And uh, I think you can see that I'm already doing this. I mean, I very early on questioned a, a judicial nominee for the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, asked some tough questions about her positions on things like uh, the right to life, on substantive due process. And I took a pretty fair amount of criticism uh, from some interest groups uh, in, on my side of the aisle uh, and from some members of my own party here in the Senate who said, you know, you really basically said you really ought to sit down and shut up and uh, just sign off on it. And I said, that's not what the people of Missouri elected me to do on anything. They didn't elect me just to sign off and say, well, whatever I'm told. They elected me to ask tough questions and to get answers and to press people, whether that's judicial nominees or whether it's big pharma or whether it's big tech. That's my job. And I'm dead serious about doing it. 
And you were talking about Judge Rao of the appeals court for the Washington, D.C. circuit. Is that correct, first of all? Right. That's correct. You know, I was reading a lot of the pushback you got from it, and it was from conservative media outlets like the Wall Street Journal. It does kind of bring to mind that there there does seem to be enormous pressure from all ideological sides to fall in line. I'm sure that if, if you were a liberal Democrat under Democratic administration had done the same thing, I'm sure that like the nation or salon would have written a scathing editorial too. So my, my, the reason for me bringing it up is how much pressure do lawmakers like yourself who are on the judiciary committee get to vote for or against judicial nominees? Because from the outside looking in, it must be, be enormous amounts of pressure. You know, I, I've come to think here in my my twelve weeks uh, in in the Senate that one of the ways that you can think of the folks who are here is is not necessarily are they are they Republicans or Democrats, but do they have guts or do they not have guts? And uh, you know, you you can put people in those two categories. I mean, some some folks are really kind of go along to get along uh, uh, folks, and other people you think you know what uh, whatever their substantive views on policy may be, they've got guts, and I know at the end of the day they'll stand up. And I think you can figure out pretty quick which category people fall into. And you know, I, I want to say that I I view it as my responsibility to show some guts and stick to my guns and do what I think is right. And it, I don't care who criticizes me, whether it's you know, big newspapers or whether people run ads against me or whatever else, I don't care. I was sent here by the people of Missouri to be a strong voice for the people of Missouri, not for any interest group, but for them. And uh, I'm going to do that no matter what. I know that there was just a rule change about uh, confirming judges potentially more quickly. Your colleague, Senator Blunt, was involved with that. Can you just explain to our listeners who may not understand the minutiae of, of filibuster politics, what that's going to mean for judicial nominees and what it's going to mean for someone like you on the Judiciary Committee. Hopefully it'll mean that there's less partisanship and less grandstanding uh, related to nominees. I mean, the, the truth of the matter is, Jason, that the Democrats have been engaging in a, in a historically unprecedented attempt to obstruct President Trump from getting nominees to his own administration. Set aside judges for a second. Let's just talk about cabinet and, and sub-cabinet level nominees. These, these are the people who, who actually execute the president's agenda day to day. The president is, after all, the duly elected chief executive of the United States. President Obama was fond of saying elections have consequences. That's very true. But what Democrats have attempted to do in the last two years is prevent this president from staffing up his government. It's really extraordinary. I mean, I can't think of another time in American history when this has happened on this scale. And they've done it by demanding that every single nominee to the executive branch get a full 30 hours of debate, 3-0. That's, that's not like 30 hours in the world. That's 30 hours on the floor of the Senate, Senate working hours. But here's the thing. You might think, oh, OK, well, maybe I'll go along and watch some of this debate. No, you wouldn't, because you go to the floor and it's 30 hours of sitting around. Most of these people aren't even controversial. And for many of them, when they actually came up for a vote, a lot of Democrats voted for them. It was all about politics. It's all about slowing down the staffing of the administration and, by the way, slowing down the Senate so we can't do anything except for vote on nominations once every 30 hours of Senate debate. It's it's ridiculous. It's never been used before. This sort of procedure, this obstructionism has never been done before on this scale to any administration. So we changed the rules to say you can't do it. And we took the 30 hours down to two hours. And this will apply going forward no matter who is president, no matter which party is in control of the Senate. And I think that's important. 
end. What would you say to Democrats who are like Republicans who are complaining about obstructionism shouldn't be complaining because of what happened to Merrick Garland's nomination to the Supreme Court? You know, I think the Merrick Garland situation is is not analogous. I mean, there you actually had a long historical precedent. First, we're talking about one judge, a Supreme Court nominee. And by the way, this this rules change about the 30 hours of debate doesn't affect Supreme Court nominees. So they'll still get the full 30 hours, which is appropriate, and uh, the full vetting. And oftentimes there is real debate around Supreme Court nominees, as there should be. But in the case of Merrick Garland, uh, you know, listen, there had the Senate had not confirmed a presidential nomination by a lame duck president to the Supreme Court uh, in an election year in over a century. And there had been multiple opportunities when the Senate could have done so, but didn't. And so what happened with Merrick Garland was in keeping with over 100 years of tradition. But you know what? The, the bigger point I would say, Jason, is I, I was not here for that. I haven't been part of these old fights in the past. And as, as somebody who is new here and wants to get stuff done, it's a little discouraging to hear all of these old grudge matches resurfaced every time as an excuse to why we can't move forward. It's like, well, you did this to me. Oh, no, you did that to me. Well, before this, you did that to me. For heaven's sake, it, it, the, the people of Missouri and the country have elected us to go to work and to get stuff done now. So I would just say to both sides, that's enough of the food fight. Let's get on with it. I mean, we've got real work to do. Let's get on with it. We'll return to our interview with U.S. Senator Josh Hawley after this message. Before we start talking about uh, some of the major issues involving the president, I do want to talk about uh, your stance with uh, big technology companies, because it's gained a lot of interest among both sides of the political spectrum. For full disclosure here, and I mentioned this uh, off air to uh, your communications director, my brother, my stepbrother actually works for Google, but I don't benefit from him financially, and I barely talk to him. But I want to make sure that there's that disclosure out there uh, in case, rather than someone else disclose it. So Let's let's get on with the conversation there. Why have you decided to take kind of a harder edge against companies like Google, Facebook, and Twitter? Because that is one of the things that a lot of people have have noticed in your your first few weeks in the Senate. Because they're doing incredibly creepy things. They're being dishonest about it, and it's hurting Missouri families. You know, I mean, you've got these. In fact, I, I just before we sat down here together, Jason, I, I was questioning executives from Twitter and Facebook at a committee hearing, and they were giving me their usual roundabout uh, no answers uh, to to my questions. Uh, and I, I'm tired of it. And I think a lot of families are too. I mean, these companies are the biggest, most powerful companies in the world, maybe in the history of the world, because they collect more personal, private, confidential information on us than anybody ever. I mean, you're worried if you're worried about the government collecting stuff on you, which I am, by the way, everybody should be, well, these companies, they've got far more information on you, I promise, than the United States government does or any other entity, and they sell it. They get rich on it. But here's the thing. Usually, they haven't asked for permission to take it. So they hold out their services to the public, whether it's Twitter or Gmail or Google Shopping. They look like they're for Facebook. They look like they're free. The public thinks they're free, but they're not free. They're actually paying for what they give you by taking from you your personal information, not telling you, not allowing you to reclaim it. And then in many cases, it gets resold. So I've introduced legislation that would stop this as it relates to kids up to the age of 15. My legislation says you can't track kids online. You can't direct ads towards them online. And if a, if a kid or uh, her parents want all of the data that these companies have collected on her to be deleted, they have to do it. The company 
companies have to do it. I think it's a good place to begin, but we have to hold these companies accountable, Jason. They shouldn't be a law unto themselves. Uh, they should be accountable to the people. You know, one of the, I mean, you're absolutely right about how uh, influential, wealthy, and powerful these technological companies have gotten, and they become ubiquitous in our lives. But they're also private companies, and I've been hearing for a long time from Republicans that Republicans don't want to interfere in business and want to get out of the way for, for, for even large companies to exist and do their jobs. Does what you're saying kind of conflict with that sentiment, or, or do you feel like this is an exception because of how you mentioned these companies are acting toward literally, I was going to say millions, but potentially billions of people. Well, look, I'm, I'm all for the free market, but the free market depends on free and fair competition. And my worry is that that is not what we have now, that we have these companies that have grown so huge that they're exerting monopoly power, uh, market concentration, and they're using that to extract this information from consumers without telling us. They're not really giving us any options. They're getting rich off of it. And by the way, for good measure, they're preventing other people from competing with them. They're stifling competition, which means they're also stifling innovation. So I think we need more competition. I think our markets need to be freer. But let's not lose sight of what the free market's for at the end of the day. The free market is not just an end in itself. The free market is to protect and promote the well-being of the people it serves, of the of the American people, of our workers, of our families. That's what the market is for. And a market's only a good market if it's actually good for our families and for our workers. And th that is my guiding principle. Can you explain why you wrote a letter to Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey asking for a third-party audit? I, I, I think it, it revolves around conservative uh, interaction on, on Twitter. Uh, I want you to explain that before I get to my next question. You bet. Twitter took down, banned a, an account recently uh, for a movie called Unplanned. And it's it's a movie that uh, is about abortion, which is a difficult, fraught, charged subject. Uh, but uh, this is a movie that uh, is about uh, one person's journey uh, on that subject, thinking through that, experiencing it in a very personal way. Uh, Twitter uh, took down the account for Unplanned Movie on its opening weekend. Uh, effectively silencing them. I mean, this is a crucial uh, channel of social communication, Twitter is, effectively silencing them for uh, hours and days. And then later put the account back up after they got severe public pressure and said, oh, it was a, it was a mistake. This is just one mistake too many. I mean, there, are, there have been example after example of conservative or libertarian voices that get deplatformed, as it's sometimes called, by Twitter, only later to have the company say, well, oops, you know, we, we, we made a mistake. So what I said is, look, if Twitter is for transparency, do an audit. Do an audit of your political bias and release it to the public. I think it's a very reasonable request. I was just pressing Twitter on it this very day at a committee hearing, and they won't do it. They, they, they say, oh, we're all for transparency. But when you say, OK, open your books and show me, they say no. Well, they're a private company, and as I mentioned before, and I, I mean, I hold free speech and the marketplace of ideas as a reporter very close to my heart. But, you know, just as, like, you can come into somebody's house as you're invited— and also be kicked out of somebody's house if you're misbehaving. It seems like that principle applies to Twitter. Uh, not saying that the particular situation that you mentioned is, is right or wrong, but 
what what gives the government's right to decide what a private company like Twitter can do in terms of, of regulating itself, basically? Twitter gets a special privilege, set of privileges from the government that uh, you don't have as a as a reporter, and that the platforms on which you publish your reporting, for example, um, do not have, and that is uh, immunity. Uh, from any suit, any liability uh, to the public over the decisions they make about content. This is what's known as Section 230. Uh, it is two, Section 230 is a, is a statute that says that these big tech companies don't have to be accountable to the public in the same way that newspapers and radio stations and television stations do, that these companies can exercise editorial controls and editorial decisions but not be subject uh, to uh, uh, to lawsuits challenging them. And the reason the government gave Twitter, Google, and Facebook this special privilege is they said that these would be companies that were committed to free and open discourse, to being a, a First Amendment forum. So, you know, if Twitter wants to be a platform just for liberals, that is, they are perfectly entitled to do so. You're right, they're a private company. But they shouldn't get Section 230 immunity then. They should be treated like anybody else. They should be treated like any other editorial page who are free to say whatever they want but can't get these special deals from government. And you might say, well, what difference does that special deal make? It makes a huge difference. It's this immunity from suit and liability that has allowed Twitter and Facebook and Google and the other dominant platforms to get so huge, so powerful, and so rich. In the last few minutes we have left, I do want to touch on several questions involving the president. You voted, um, I guess, against a resolution to basically overturn the president's emergency declaration in terms of immigration. Your colleague, Senator Roy Blunt, voted in favor of that resolution. I hope I'm getting the terminology correct, like voting for or against the resolution. Um, But his reasoning was that he was fearful that if there's a Democratic president, and the Democratic president wants to institute the Green New Deal by emergency declaration, then this is kind of leading the way to do something like that. I know I'm kind of paraphrasing what uh, Roy Blunt said, but that argument has come up. And I'd like you to explain your particular vote on this and uh, respond to some of that argumentation, even coming from your own party. Absolutely. You know, I I voted to uphold the president's emergency declaration because I think that the situation at the border is an emergency. It really is. In fact, it is worse than I understood before I came to the Senate and was had the, the benefit of being briefed by Customs and Border Patrol, hearing from agents at the border and seeing the information firsthand about what's really going on. It, it is a full-blown crisis, Jason. Let me just outline why, because I think people deserve to know this. Drug cartels, Mexican drug cartels, are in control of 100 percent of the border on the southern side, 100 percent. That is what the head of the Customs and Border Patrol Agency told me directly under oath uh, at a committee hearing. Nobody crosses that border without them making a profit on it and without them using those people in some way. We've got a major human smuggling crisis at the border. We've got a major drug smuggling crisis at the border, and it's affecting us here in Missouri. We've got a big meth problem in Missouri, but we don't make the meth in Missouri. It comes over the southern border. We have a fentanyl problem. It comes over the southern border. Increasingly, other synthetic opioids coming across the southern border. So it, it is something that affects 
us day to day in our state, and the border is careening out of control. So we've got to do something about it. The question before us in Congress was, uh, on that vote that you mentioned, is this an emergency or not? Because Congress passed a law back in the 70s that gives the president, any president, the ability to declare a national emergency. And then Congress is supposed to say, okay, well, do we really agree that this is an emergency or not? And I think it, I think it is. And that's why I voted to uphold the emergency declaration. Do you think that uh, the Mueller report, which has not been fully released yet, but there has been a summary of it that I think came out a couple of weeks ago, do you think that the full report should be released to the public so that they can absorb the entirety of the information? Yeah, I think yes. I think everything that that can be released under the legally should be released. And you know, Attorney General Barr committed to this in his confirmation hearings before the Judiciary Committee. I was there when he said that he would release everything that he was permitted to. Now, I can tell you as a, as a former prosecutor, I, I understand the position he's in. The, the law, federal law, prohibits the release of information that is uh, part of ongoing investigations or ongoing trials. So that has to come out. I mean, there's no choice about it. It must come out. And that is, as I understand it, what the attorney general and his team, with the help of the special counsel, are doing right now. It's a big report. They're calling out the material that they are legally required to withhold. Um, and then they're going to give all the rest of it uh, to Congress and to the public. And I think that is exactly the right approach. My final question for you, how much confidence do you have in President Trump um, of basically leading the nation through what could be what a hypothetical uh, economic downturn? I ask this question because the last Republican president, George W. Bush, had to lead the nation during probably the worst recession of our lifetimes. I'm not saying there's going to be a recession in the near future, but based on what you've seen, I'd be interested to hear your take on your 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 feelings about the president's ability to lead through a crisis like that. Well, I think that the president has shown that he's he's absolutely up to leading through a crisis. Uh, you know, whether it's the North Korea situation, uh, which had had reached a crisis point, in which the president was able to turn uh, that pressure. Uh, into uh, negotiations of a, of a kind that we haven't seen um, in in decades. Um, you, you see him, you know, whether it's the crisis at the border where you see him s- not sugarcoating it, but saying, look, this is real. This is out of control, and we have to do something about it. We can't just we can't just cover our eyes. So his his economic record is a phenomenal record. I mean, to have uh, wages growing, so I always think about at the end of the day. Set aside all the statistics. At the end of the day, is it really good? For the people who are working hardest in our state, is it good for working families? Uh, is it good for folks uh, who are who are just barely making it? And, you know, we're seeing real wage growth for the first time in in decades under this president. I hope that wage growth uh, will continue. I think it will. Uh, but that's the kind of progress that we're beginning to make, and and we need to press forward. That's it for the latest edition of Politically Speaking. I just want to thank Senator Holly for taking the time to talk with me today. You can read all of our stories at stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. You can follow the senator at Holly Moe. I'm Jason Rosenbaum, and until next time, so long.